Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. She makes beer. She brings me cheer. I really like that she's here. It's time for Brewing After Hours with Sarah Flora. Hi, I'm Sarah Flora. You may know me as Flora Brewing on Instagram and YouTube, where I dive into the technical aspects of making beer. My new podcast, Brewing After Hours, is going to take a different look at the history and stories behind beer. I'm going to bring you a story a week, as well as conversations with homebrewers and professionals in the industry. And of course, we'll be cracking some beers along the way. Hello, and welcome to Brewing After Hours. I'm Sarah Flora. On today's show, it's all about pub history. In a bit, I'll chat with pub historian Liz Garibay, founder of the Chicago Bruseum, as she takes us through her adventures hosting history pub crawls and shares stories about some of the oldest pubs in the world. Also, with most of our favorite local watering holes being closed this past year, of course because of COVID, I thought we could hear from some hospitality professionals about what makes a good pub and hear about some of their favorite beer bars around the globe. So get your notepads out because you're going to want to write down this stuff for when we are all allowed to go outside again. Stay tuned for that after my interview with Liz. So let's dive back into history. When did a pub first appear? Well, it's actually been traced back to the Romans. At these taverns, you could get a meal, socialize, and even stay the night. It was pretty much like a hostel or what you would think of as like an inn. While taverns were historically mostly used by travelers, as the economy changed and less people were growing their own food, it became a more prominent fixture in people's everyday lives. So originally, everyone just had their home and work, and those were their two places, but I worked at Starbucks for a long time, and we had this concept of the third place, and they always wanted it to be Starbucks. But taverns really were the actual third place for a lot of people, and they still are. The term public house didn't come about until the 17th century, and Dublin, Ireland was pub central. There were over 2,000 pubs at that time. So if you think about the population of Dublin and the amount of pubs, it was pretty much all pubs. These pubs became a place for the common man to get a drink and socialize since the private clubs were meant for the upper class. All sorts of people would congregate there from businessmen to artists to politicians and, of course, the average working man. And I think this is kind of why beer is so communal and so accepting of everyone because it's how it started. It started as a working man's place and it has kind of kept that moniker. And though we do have real fancy beers now, they're very accessible to a lot of people. The pups we know of today actually didn't start appearing until the 19th century. So that takes us into what are some of the oldest pubs? Grab your drinks because I'm taking you there. The oldest bar in Ireland, and Europe, and possibly the entire world, claims to be Sean's Bar in Athlone, Ireland, and please do not judge my pronunciation. It dates back to 900 CE. The Guinness Book of World Records lists Sean's as the oldest pub in Europe. This claim does have some weight behind it. There are archaeological findings to prove it, actually. Some of these findings include the walls being made of wattle and wicker, which signifies its establishment in the 9th century. Old coins were also found, and I love a good treasure hunt. Both the walls and the coins are on display at the National Museum of Ireland. The pub is named after Luane Mac Lugdish, again, pronunciation, Luane's son of Louis. He opened an inn, which is now known as Sean's Bar, Luane acted as a guide to travelers who had to venture across the rapid torrent of the Shannon per the Sean's Bar website. And today the bar actually makes its own whiskey. So go check it out when you can. There are also claims that the Brazen Head in Ireland may be one of the oldest pubs in Ireland, opening in 1198 as an alehouse or tavern. The Brazen Head name derives from a 13th century legend 
a bronze head mounted on marble which could supposedly predict the future. The head would answer any question you threw at it. But it would just be a simple yes or no. We're talking magic eight ball status here. There are some amazing literary connections to this pub. Author James Joyce, an Irish poet and playwright, Brendan Behan, would frequent there. Joyce references the brazen head in his infamous Ulysses and, quote, You got a decent enough do in the brazen head for a bob. Across the way in Bardsay, London, is Bingley Arms, the oldest pub in Britain. Originally, it was named the Priest's Inn. It dates back to A.D. 905 and A.D. 953. It was a safe house for persecuted Catholic priests and also a courthouse until the year 1000. It was later renamed by the owner Lord Bingley. Today, the pub serves up Yorkshire blonde ale, various gins, local delicacies, and bread baked via its original Dutch oven. Though it's not technically a beer pub, in Italy, it's all about the wine, so I had to at least mention the oldest Enoteca. Al Brindisi, according to the Guinness World Records, is the oldest wine bar, built in 1435. The name is inspired by the Italian word brindere, which means to cheers. Italian astronomer Galileo and Polish mathematician and astronomer Nicholas Copernicus frequented this tavern. Can you even imagine being a fly on the wall? Copernicus actually lived on the first floor of the bar while studying at the University of Ferrara in 1503. Talk about a celebrity sighting. Obviously, most of the oldest bars or taverns are in Europe, but the oldest one in the United States and a historic landmark is the White Horse Tavern in Newport, Rhode Island. It's America's oldest operating restaurant and the 10th oldest restaurant in the world. Founded in 1673, it was originally a two-story, two-bedroom residence for Francis Brinley. It was then purchased by William Mays Sr., who made it into a tavern. The colony's General Assembly, Criminal Court, and City Council met here for almost 100 years. When William Mays' son also named William Mays, of course, because that's the time they were in, took over, he got a license to sell all kinds of alcohol. Now, William Mays Jr. was a pirate, which makes me love this story even more. He was actually part of creating the pirate kingdom, Libertalia, but he left that life to run the tavern. The tavern later became, quote-unquote, the home of the business lunch. So from piracy to business lunch, what has really changed? And counselors dined here and would charge their meals to the public treasury. So the owner was a pirate. Mm, technically, the counselors were stealing taxpayer money. Um, what really changed? In 1730, Jonathan Nichols took charge and named it the White Horse Tavern. Today, the building still reflects colonial Newport fireplaces and all. about enjoying a beer in a cave that's 2,000 years old? Just outside the lost city of Petra in Jordan, you will find a literal cave bar. And that's the name, of course. The cave bar was used as a tomb by the Nabataean people who inhabited Jordan from 37 to 100 AD. Talk about some ancient history. You could enjoy the drink of the gods while sitting in a tomb. The bar is also part of the Crown Plaza Resort, so you can sleep and sit among all of this incredible history. If you'd like to learn more about these pubs or see photos, head over to floorbrewing.com slash podcast or sign up for the Brewing After Hours newsletter at brewingafterhours.substack.com. Now that I've got you all hyped up and hopefully liquored up, let's hear from the pub historian herself, Liz Garibay. Liz, thank you for joining us on the show today. I love beer history, and that's partially what this podcast is all about, so I thought you'd be a perfect guest. In one of your past interviews, you mentioned Chicago was built on alcohol, and as I've been doing research on the history of beer, it has further reinforced that a lot of things were in, built on alcohol in general. Um, so how does drinking culture tell us about a city's past? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Sarah. I appreciate uh, your interest in 
my work and in the subject matter, something I've been looking at for, gosh, I think we're going on 20 years here. Um, you know, alcohol is, is a, a curious uh, topic in terms of human culture, um, mostly because it's been around for a long time. And really, humans have been consuming some sort of alcoholic beverage pretty much since we could walk, um, to be honest, ever since we were, you know, on, on two legs there. And really, over time, especially in American history, alcohol has an in- incredible lens on identity, certainly with ethnicity, with location, with human interaction. It's really a valuable tool in just looking at humanity as a whole, to be honest. Yeah, I love that. It's always surprising to me that we have basically been consuming alcohol since forever. It's uh, when you're, you know, when you're just going to a bar and getting a beer, you might not think about how integral it is to our culture. What that can do for us in terms of, you know, looking at the past, it really just kind of depends. It it can change from location to location. So, you know, when you're talking about the history of a particular city, there are going to be some common denominators, but there are also going to be some very specific differences. That's kind of what makes it exciting for me is that you kind of have a basis to go on globally. And then as you sort of traverse the globe and go to specific locations, you get to examine things in a very different way. In terms of Chicago, what can you tell us about its beer history and how it has shaped the city and culture since that's where you're from and that's where the Brew Museum is? Chicago and the Midwest as a whole has a, has a fortunate situation in that we have early German influence. You know, I mean, the United States as a whole is incredibly young, you know, in greater context of world history. So really alcohol history, beer history is synonymous with American history kind of grew up together in a way. And in, in Chicago, again, in the Midwest, you know, we have this influx of, of German immigrants coming through in the early 1800s. And really, it's the Germans who just have the resources uh, to move from the East Coast and head West. And, you know, fresh water helps, flatlands help. And so various cities start to form, villages, towns, start to form. And so, of course, with many of these Germans, uh, they bring their skill sets. And so lucky for us, that meant that there were a good amount of butcher shops and bakeries and, of course, breweries. So in Chicago, you know, beer history is present even before we become a city, you know, as a, as a, a modern city, if you will. Of course, I always like to start a lot of my Chicago stories with Native American presence. But really, with beer, we start looking at the 19th century, and and really, it just really gives us a lot of insight to um, the foundation of the city, how the city is laid out, immigration, for sure, politics, crime, you know, innovation, technology, all of the above. And so, you know, Chicago is a really interesting story because it's so... Beer is so involved in in every aspect of our city's history. Like one of the greatest examples I can give you is, so Chicago becomes a city in 1837. In 1833, we are a township. Before 1833, we're just a small village, right? So if we're hanging out in this area of the world in 1832, we're in the small village of, of Chicago. And at the time, there's already you know, handful of bars for the few couple hundred folks living here. And there's some people already making decisions for the village. And they decide that they need to get together and have a conversation about the future of this village. And of course, they all decide that they should just go to the bar, right? And have the talk the way we do uh, for important meetings and such. So they're throwing back, you know, whiskey and some imported beer and some cider. They kind of, they vote and say, hey, you know what? The next step for this village is to become a township. In 1833, at the Saugnash Tavern, Chicago becomes an official township. Four years later, they decide to have a similar meeting, except this time it's going to be about becoming an official city. And so they go to that same bar, the Saugnash Tavern, and throw back the same drinks and vote. Chicago becomes a city in 1837. So Chicago's origins are truly in the bowels of a bar, and not even once, but twice, right? And that kind of sets the tone for our relationship with the city um, and alcohol. That's amazing. You mentioned Native Americans um, and how kind of the history of alcohol in Chicago started with them. What kind of alcohol were they creating? 
Well, it's not so much that Native Americans were creating alcohol or even consuming them at first. You know, I always just like to talk about any sort of American city is making sure that people understand that there's a Native American presence, right? We are a Native American land. It's and, And unfortunately, it's not always a great story because you basically have, you know, immigrants and settlers coming in and sort of changing the game, changing the landscape, changing way things happen. And so in Chicago, we actually have a man by the name of John Kinsey, who is one of the early citizens. He gets a lot of credit when he shouldn't, to be honest. (laughs) But Kinsey is, you know, making his own alcohol and eventually illegally uh, is able to sell it to soldiers who are not technically able to buy it. And the way he gets around doing that is by selling it to Native Americans who can then sell it to soldiers because different laws. Right. So he basically introduces this alcohol perspective of life to the Native Americans. And and that's sort of where they get involved in the alcohol game. So not necessarily the best story, but, you know, certainly a part of the story. And, you know, as a historian, I'm an avid believer that you have to talk about the bad in order to to better understand the realities uh, of the past and better understand certainly the present. Yeah. Speaking of the bad, do you have any stories about prohibition and basically mob activity in Chicago? Because I know uh, it was pretty prevalent uh, there. Yeah, I mean, prohibition is one of those things that everyone likes to talk about. It's curious to me that we have romanticized it as much as we have. I think, you know, the thing about prohibition that I really like to discuss is not so much the the crime or the mob activity, because certainly we knew it existed. But at the same time, we don't know too much about it, because what we do know about it are police reports, right? Newspaper articles. And a lot of times newspaper articles are very one-sided. That was certainly the issue in 19th century uh, Chicago. People writing stories were very much, some of them were very anti-immigrant. So a lot of the things that you saw printed were not always necessarily um, true. So we actually don't know a lot about the inner workings of, you know, speakeasies and all this illegal sort of aspect to it all. And I think that that's kind of part of the the story that we do like to romanticize in a way because we just don't know. So let's make it up, right? And, and then let's just like create something in our own head. But with prohibition for me, I think that some of the things that I take away from it are the good things. And there are certainly good things. You know, the fact that people were gathering in quote unquote illegal spaces doing naughty things, right? Made it so that other sorts aspects of our American uh, culture and identity could happen. So for example, industrial alcohol was legal, of course, running machinery. And so suddenly people became chemists and were able to extract the things in the industrial alcohol that would potentially kill you and sell it to, you know, people who are running these uh, drinking establishments. And you could go and you could drink it, but you're certainly taking a risk not knowing where that alcohol was coming from. And, And that really sort of fueled a lot of these prohibitionists, right? Because they talked about how alcohol could kill you. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that sometimes it could because you didn't know you know where it was coming from. You didn't know the quality of it, right? But in like the nicer places, you know, that alcohol might have been slightly better quality, but it still tasted like garbage. So a lot of the patrons would demand uh, of, of the owners to, you know, help them out and make it taste a little bit better. And so really it's the beginnings of what we now know as mixology, right? Trying to make things like with recipes and make actually taste good. So, you know, there's that aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that, you know, women were not allowed to drink in bars. They're not allowed to enter bars. So um, if you were a woman and you were seen in a bar, you were a certain kind of woman offering a certain kind of service, right? And so with prohibition, you really started to see the beginning of women feeling a little bit more free and being in some of these spaces and people not really caring and and, you know, uh, having a little bit of that liberation and that freedom. If you look at 19th century dress, it's all very dark and stark and, and, and tight and, you know, up to the neck and down to the ankles. And all of a sudden, if you have that vision of the flapper that we all know, you know, that's the antithesis of it, right? Free and, and flowing. And so I think that, you know, the beginnings of true, like, liberation for women and later on, you know, uh, women being able to have the right to vote. These are all because of what prohibition sort of starts, you know, same with LGBT uh, community back then, you know, the words lesbian and gay didn't even exist, right? These romantic friendships were sort of hidden, very hidden. 
And if you saw that in a bar, you know, maybe not for you, but people sort of just looked away and that was it. And so this was the, these spaces were places where people could just be. You had artists and and writers and people involved in arts and culture coming together and throwing back gin and, you know, getting creative, the more creative they got because they were drinking all this gin. And so they are called the gintellectuals, right? And from that, from these conversations of the gintellectuals, you get, you know, the great Gatsby and, and other great works of art. And so there's a lot of creativity that is born into that. And, you know, gosh, there's jazz music, right? There's opportunities for African-Americans that were coming up from the great migration and, and finding work in these establishments. It's also just being able to be a, a patron and, a, and, and a, a consumer. So there's a lot of things that have to do with ethnicity, identity, and gender, and sexuality, and arts and culture that really sort of are part of our American identity that are born from prohibition. And so that's sort of when I talk about prohibition, those are the things that I like to focus on. Yeah, I mean, that's a completely different take on prohibition than I think I've ever heard. You know, it's a kind of inspiring tale uh, when you put it that way. So the Bruseum is the first nonprofit organization to tell the global story of beer. Uh, It's such an incredible resource. And I'm sure a lot of us homebrewers and just beer enthusiasts are really excited to be able to look at your work and find out more about this thing that we love so much. So how did the idea of the Bruseum come to life? Uh, I have been working in museums since I was 15 years old, either as like, you know, on the curatorial side or the education side. And as I evolved in my career, I always knew that I wanted to present information in a very different way. And so married with that was a sort of side hobby, to be honest with you, of looking at history through the lens of alcohol. I started doing all of that work really just because I was into it, right? I was in graduate school and in archaeology, and I love ancient history, but there was something magical to me when I was sitting in a bar talking to old timers, talking to regulars, talking to owners, and really listening to what was valuable oral histories. And so I started my research in in tavern history, and then it kind of grew from there. And as I sort of continued my museum work and continued this sort of hobby, I began marrying the two. And really, it was a a struggle, to be honest, because back in the mid-2000s, combining museum education and alcohol was a massive no-no, right? Um, People would tell me that by talking about alcohol history, I was dumbing down history, or I was using it as an excuse for me to personally have a beer while having a conversation or whatever, whatever you can imagine, right? And so I was finally given the opportunity by somebody who kind of thought that my work was valuable and they let me do a few things uh, at the Chicago History Museum. And it turned into a very successful and profitable venture for the History Museum. So I started to present a lot of my research and conversations and lectures and tours. And eventually I wanted an exhibition and it just never worked out. And so I left the museum to pursue some private projects. And eventually I was asked to do an exhibition at a different museum. And over the years, I had collected different statistics, right? As the craft beer industry was growing, my information was growing, my own research was growing. And so I tell this very long story because people think that the Bruseum just happened overnight. What ended up happening was after years of doing museum work, after years of doing all this beer history work, and after years of trying to get an exhibition going, it was just the right time for all of them to come together. And I basically said, screw the exhibition. I want a whole museum. I started building a team and talking to a few mentors at different museums and foundations and and getting their insight and uh, found a lot of support. Everyone said, go do it. It's going to be a lot of work, go do it, build a great team, and you'll make it happen. So that's kind of how it was born. That's fascinating. Just based on that history, it seems like the interest has always kind of been there. I mean, yeah, it's kind of difficult, unless you're specifically looking for it, to find history of alcohol and beer. And when you say it was a no-no for a long time, it certainly seems like that. I first started going on this rabbit hole in like 1997, 98, and then getting really serious about it in the early 2000s. 
And there was nothing. There was really nothing that I could find. There were a few books, of course, but they were not known. In 2005 or six, Maureen Ogle wrote this book called Ambitious Brew. Uh, but the history of the United States and beer. And I read it and I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad Maureen exists. And I'm so glad she wrote this book. And it sort of gave me hope, right? That I wasn't crazy for thinking that alcohol could be a tool to talk about history. You know, that sort of thing started, you know, with, with Maureen's book and a few other publications and alcohol being a bit more present in museums that started to change. But like now people are able to go get their PhDs in alcohol history, which to me is like unheard of, right? It's like, holy crap, you could just show up and, and have a career kind of honestly, just like kind of handed to you in a way, but it's also very inspiring that it's a thing. Yeah, I love it. It's great for me because I'm able to talk to so many people who are like jumping into this career as well, like you. It's just wonderful. And I couldn't imagine doing this 20 years or so ago. So you've hosted a lot of tours, something like over 150. Can you share a couple of your favorite tours to give? Oh, gosh. Um... Well, I mean, you know, I'm I'm born and raised in Chicago. And so Chicago, most of my tours are, are rooted in, in the city. And, you know, locally, there are just some neighborhood tours that I love, you know, going from tavern to tavern and now tavern to brewery and wherever, you know, they serve um, alcohol. Looking at just sort of these specific neighborhoods and the people who come and go and, and, the, and looking at it in the greater context of the city as a whole has always been sort of one of my favorite things to do. I've also been really, really lucky to go to other cities around the world and do some things there. You know, Scotland is near and dear to my heart, England, uh, Austria, Mexico. I'm trying to tell you like what my favorite tour is, is like trying to ask someone who their favorite child is. Although I have a theory that people actually do have favorite children, right? A hundred percent. So I noticed you hosted a tour in Mexico City. And once COVID is over, Mexico's on the top list of places to visit in my book. Um, so I'd love to learn more about the beer culture and history over there. Um, can you share some interesting findings about the beer culture of Mexico City past and present? Yeah, so um, I am I'm a big fan of Mexico City. My parents are from there. I've been going to Mexico City since I was a kid. You know, one of the things that I love about Latin culture, and I mean, honestly, it, it's a it's a it's a global thing too, is that there's no taboo in alcohol and age, right? Alcohol is always present, and, and it's always, for the most part, a communal celebratory thing, if you will, or just like an everyday thing that sort of exemplifies family and friends. One of the things that I look at with Mexico City, again, almost going back to that Chicago connection and the Native American connection is some of those early indigenous drinking traditions. You know, the Aztecs were definitely consuming some funny elixirs. If you can think about like just what we already know about the, the rich history of Mexico, you can certainly connect the dots to alcohol. And of course, you know, there's an ancient Aztec drink called pulque that technically for me is really just not pleasant. Not the best agave drink I can think of, but people love it. But it's part of that really, you know, it's part of that identity. And so you have to talk about it. And of course, you know, there's there's traditions of tequila and mezcal. And then you, people don't often know that, you know, with a lot of the Spaniards who came about, they start, you know, these missionaries come through and, you know, nuns are making beverages, right? Alcoholic beverages. They make like these like vanilla flavored, like almost like a brandy that becomes very popular, is still very popular in Mexico. The Austrian Austrians, right, uh, have some time in Mexico and, and are ruling Mexico as part of the Austrian Empire. So if you think about beers like, you know, Mexican beers that you know of, like Negro Modelo, right, that's a Vienna lager. So a lot of the Mexican beer traditions that the macro beers that we know of are really because of that Austrian influence, right? So there's a lot of interesting ways to look at Mexican history. And then, of course, right now, you know, exactly what's happening around the world in the United States is happening in Mexico City. You have craft beer makers, you have um, small distillers uh, trying to sort of either reinvent and, and take a, do a modern take on the old or people who are so embedded in, in strong history and tradition that are trying to almost like, you know, pay homage to it and just make sure that it keeps going. So. It's, it's a cool place. It's got some great beverage. It's got some amazing food. And 
it's just a it's just a, a vibrant vibrant culture with such friendly and good people and such amazing history yeah i cannot wait to go definitely on the top of my list my husband got to work in mexico last year and i was extremely jealous i didn't get to go visit so earlier in the episode, I talked about some of the world's oldest pubs. I know you have extensive knowledge of pubs throughout Europe. If you could go back to any of these pubs, which would they be and why? Gosh, again, this is so hard because there's so many. It's like another favorite child <laughs> question. Yeah, I mean, they're just, this is the thing about pubs, right? There's some that like, you know, ooze history and, and, and you want to sit there and just like think, think about how the place is. And, by the way, as an American, it's really mind blowing to go to Europe and sit in the historic pub because in, everything's so damn old, right? For us, it's like in, in the United States, if we, you know, if you go to New York City, you go to McSorley's and you're sitting, you know, in, in one of the oldest pubs in the United States, that's 1854, right? That's nothing, right? But then you're like sitting, you know, in England and you're sitting in a in a bar from like 1540. I mean, that's just mind blowing. So anyway. The the historian in me gets really geeked out by the the dates of some of these places. But then the thing about bars for me that I think is relatable to everybody that is so important, I think probably the most important, is that the, there are spaces that can make you feel comfortable. They can make you feel at home, right? And either you, you are sitting there and it's just the environs that make you feel that way, or it's because you have become a regular, right? And you created this bar family and people know you. And there's really something special about that. And so first for me, you know, some of the bars around Chicago are certainly because of the bar family. And there are some bars around the world that, you know, I can walk back into and people will amazingly recognize me because, uh, you know, I've been there enough. And so I'm trying to think about your question in regard to my favorite spaces in terms of history, in terms of environs, in terms of the people. There's a bar and I'm almost afraid to share it because I, I want it to be sort of on the download. There's a bar in Edinburgh called Kay's Pub and it's not, you know, on the Royal Mile. It's not where everyone thinks in the middle of Edinburgh. You really have to find it. But it's a small little one and a half room house that is really just so awesome, right? And I just can sit there and get a, a Scottish a historic beer, a craft beer, a glass of wine, and just read a book and, you know, just enjoy the fact that I'm in Scotland. There is you know, and then there's a cliche, right? In London, gosh, you can just stumble and find a historic pub. And there's a very, very famous one that people have talked about a ton, but it's one of my favorites. It's called Ye Old Cheshire Cheese. And you feel like you're walking into a historic pub in London that's just very different. And there's the dark woods and such, but it's just so quaint. And one of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. And there are stories about Dickens being in there and writing and things. And so there's just something special about that place. And even though it, it can be touristy or it's well known or people have written extensively about it, for me, it's one of those places that just feels personally comfortable. And it's one of the first places I always go to when I'm in London. There is a bar that I cannot tell you the name of because I don't speak German fluently, but in Salzburg, Austria, there's another one of these places. And that's that one is mostly because of the people, right? That's one of those places where I can walk in and uh, lucky for me, they're kind enough and speak English and, and they'll recognize me, uh, you know, being a short brown American, I stand out amongst the tall blonde hair, blue eyed Austrian. So they remember me and it's a very simple bar. There's no bells or whistles to it. But for me, that's just, you know, like I'm in, I'm in Salzburg, uh, I'm going to this bar. You know, I mentioned McSorley's uh, in New York City. I love that place. Again, touristy, but it's historic. And I, it's one of those places where I can just sit and hang out with my friends and play cards for 10 hours or so. God, I'm trying to peruse the globe for you and think of some of these places. Um, but those are, some, those are some off the top of my head. Yeah, there's just something so comfortable about sitting in a bar. I think a lot of us miss it now that we can't really do it, especially in California. It's like one day we can, the next day we can't. And uh, I think everyone's excited to go and visit once we can again. I'm uh, cautiously planning some excursions now, just 
just because the process of planning is gives me enough hope and joy uh, in the meantime until we can do this, this stuff safely. Yeah, I'm doing the same planning on going to Asheville and Texas. I'm very excited to go soon. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was lovely to chat. And I hope you can visit all those amazing bars. I'm going to have to write a list down <laughs> so that I can keep track for when I'm traveling. Well, thank you for having me, Sarah. Always, always happy to chat and appreciate you guys reaching out and and being interested in, in some of this work that I've been doing. Hello, it's Ash Elliott here, the producer and editor for Brewing After Hours. I've worked in beer for three years now, previously worked in music, and I'm a business partner in Flora Brewing. We wanted to make this an extra special episode and include industry professionals here in our home of Los Angeles, as well as globally, whom are experts in beer. Before we hear from our guests, I have to share how pubs have always been a huge part of my life in terms of finding community and a safe place after a long fucking day at the office. It's insane to think most of my favorite bars have been closed for a year. At one point, I was out most nights at events and beer tending on the weekend. The brewery I worked at closed for good. Rest in peace, Dry River Brewing. The one bar in LA which had a great selection of local beer and where my best bud and I would have our birthdays, celebrations, after work catch-ups. That was even my go-to spot for dates. It was sold and will never be the same. Bars and breweries have always been a place I found community. A hang after our dodgeball games, a place of peace after a long, insane day of working in music. Sometimes I would use it as my office. Most of the time, I would talk to random strangers and I'd make new friends. And it was my home away from all the other bullshit happening around me. And I'd always look forward to seeing the staff. That ultimately was the top reason it felt like home. It was all of them. Most people probably wouldn't go to a bar intentionally alone. Maybe as a source of desperation when in a shitty mood, or maybe if meeting someone for a Tinder date. But there are a few that recognize the thrill of walking into a room filled with conversations, laughter, and strangers. On another note, my grandma once said, tough bananas if you can't drink alone. And that has stuck with me to this day because you have to be okay with doing things alone and you'll find your community when you do shit you like on your own. Bars have grown to be somewhat of a comfort to me. I've grown to depend on it, actually. Somewhere to be, escape to, re-energize, reflect. It's where real conversations happen. It's where you feel free of the corporate igloo you are forced to sit in for most of the day. It's my safety net, my place of reason, a true home, familiarity, warmth. I walk through the door, waiting a moment for my eyes to readjust the dim lighting, find my spot at the bar, pull out the stool, and plop down, ready for anything. With that said, please support your local bar. Get to go if that's an available option. Buy some merch. Share a story. Post about how great they are on social media. And as more and more bars open up, please be respectful of the staff and tip your fucking bartender. So, what do you think makes a good pub? I mean, I always find a few wherever I go, whether it's the Hermosillo in Los Angeles, Tornado in San Francisco, Bangers in Nashville, or the Brazen Head in Dublin, Ireland. We all have our places and our stories. So now let's hear from some real experienced beer drinkers. Hello, my name is Tyler White. I'm the taproom manager at Lawless Brewing Company. It's a new brewery that's actually opening up in North Hollywood on Tuesday, April 27th. Uh, I've worked in craft beer for about seven years, which started with me uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at Lakefront Brewery, working auxiliary, pouring beer in the chalet, working in the gift shop, eventually became a tour guide and started giving people tours throughout the brewery. So that was a lot of fun. Then I moved to California, started doing a lot of beer stuff. 
most notably working with McKellar, DTLA, uh, and HQ in Denmark for about three years, where I got to bartend and serve at the restaurant and DTLA, and then go over to Denmark once a year to be able to manage a beer festival, MBCC, which is like one of the biggest beer festivals in the world, which has been honestly such an insane experience to have with them as well. So let's see, beer bars, some of my favorite beer pubs, some of those factors, what goes into what I like about some of these spots. I would say selection, actual beers that are available, um, what's available just in general to consume on site. I'd say snacks to go along with that, you know, something to eat, (laughs) something to help be able to drink more and then i'd say probably general atmosphere or ambiance or the vibe i guess you could say of a place i mean i've got countless lots of spots lots of love for all sorts of beer bars all over the world a couple of my favorites though for sure i want to give a shout out to the muted horn in berlin honestly one of my favorite beer bars on the entire planet absolutely insane lambic selection canteon Bach Grider, all sorts of like, you know, some of the most sought after beer in the world, just casually on a bottle list, which always blew my mind. Accurately priced well as well, like not gouging you or anything like that. Uh, And there's pretzel rods. So that alone is just, uh, you know, one of the many reasons why I really enjoy the Muted Horn in Berlin. Phenomenal program that they run. Uh, Another one of my favorite bars uh, is easily War Pigs in Copenhagen in the Meatpacking District. I mean, absolutely insane barbecue, Texas style, you know, American Southern inspired barbecue that they just, you know, execute to a T super, super well. Really, really good stuff. Uh, It's also a brew pub, so they brew all their own beer and, you know, they do some really absolutely ridiculous stuff. Some of my favorite beers from them. Yuzu Pilsner, amazing on like an 80 degree Copenhagen sunny day, which rarely happen, but do exist. And uh, let's see, that's definitely one of my favorite, favorite spots. The team there too, like the whole staff, they definitely make a lot of that spot. You know what I mean? Between being super knowledgeable, super welcoming, and just being all around fun. You know, it's impossible to go to War Pigs and not have an amazing time. More locally, one of my favorite beer bars in Los Angeles. I mean, I gotta say, I gotta be spoiled. I gotta mention my home team, Waltz Bar in Eagle Rock. You know, just turned three years old this past February, but, you know, we've been so spoiled with uh, absolutely insane community, you know, phenomenal phenomenal regulars, phenomenal supporters, people who really genuinely care about not only the bar, but us there as well. So the community aspect is definitely huge. But when it comes to Waltz Bar, I mean, simplicity at its finest. I'm talking about hot dogs. I'm talking about hams. You know what I mean? Cheap beer, easy food, just really, really enjoyable, like done well, like simple, just simple stuff done well, really goes a long way. And I think that's what really helps us out at Waltz is just, you know, our dedication to being able to do that, which is a lot of fun. Hey, my name's Annie. I've been in and out of the beer world for about five years now. I originally started working for a craft beer brewery in their tap room in Germany when I was a student. I did your average tap room work, social media, and like events for them. After that, I've had a handful of other jobs. Most significantly, a ran- I ran a beer shop in Dresden, Germany. At the moment, I'm not working, but I'm living in Ireland and I am writing and contributing to a US-based beer blog. If you ever hear of Hops News, I'm writing there every now and then under the name Brew Witch. Check me out. What I think makes a good pub is one that appeals to a wide audience and has just a curated, well thought out menu, a menu that focuses on all types of beer. So international, the classic beers, and especially local beers. In a bar, I think local options make a big difference because when I'm traveling or I'm new somewhere, that's what I want to try. That's what I want to get to know. So I think having local options and really just supporting your local options makes a huge difference for me. On top of that, I think the people make the biggest difference in the world to a bar. I want them to be knowledgeable, approachable, friendly. There are so many bars in the world and tap rooms that I've only been to once, but if the bartender there is just phenomenal, I'll remember the bar and I'll remember the person. Like, there's so many places I've been to once, and I can remember exactly who I spoke with because they were just amazing. 
and I'll probably go back again, maybe just because of that person. So I think that makes a very big difference. I move around a lot. I've lived a few places, so I have a long list of beer bars that I could recommend. But at the moment, I'm currently on the western coast of Ireland. There's not a lot of beer bars around here, so I kind of expanded to the entire island of Ireland. And I genuinely think the best bar in Ireland is one called the Harbour Bar. It's in Bray, which is just south of Dublin along the coast. It's just a phenomenal bar. I don't think they would necessarily call themselves a beer bar, but it has an excellent rotation of local beers and they know what they're talking about and they just love the breweries that they're serving and they can tell you everything about the beer. So if you're looking to try some local Irish craft beer, definitely go to the Harbor Bar. On top of that, it's just a really cool bar. It's just very interesting. It's fun to wander around. And also they have phenomenal music acts. It could be an artist you've known for a while. It could be someone new who's about to change your world. But a lot of my favorite artists I saw for the first time there. So it's just a good bar for that. It's just right on the coast. So like it's a nice scenic hang if that's what you're in the mood for. I am from Illinois originally and Chicago has a long list of beer bars and breweries that I could recommend. The best bar in Chicago, in my opinion, is Hopleaf. It's in Andersonville, so on like the northern side of the neighborhoods, and it's just a phenomenal bar. It's easily my top recommendation. It has a curated menu of amazing beers, just amazing beers. You'll find international. They love Belgian beers. You'll find local beers and you'll just find like classic beers as well. So you have a lot to choose from. And again, local beers make a big difference for me in a bar and they will always support their local crowd. But their menu is just well thought out and they just, it's, there's just a lot to choose from. And they also have a phenomenal menu for food and they tend to try to pair the beer in as well. So for example, I think they have a Belgian beer fried chicken night, maybe once a month or something, and it's extremely popular and people go mad for it. But then like the next day they could have a salad with a vinaigrette that is made with the lambic from a local brewery. So they really just, they try to work with all the options they have beer wise. And it's just great. It's well done. I think that they were trying to build an international beer menu well before most other bars were and they were just going for it. So I think that's something to give them respect for. Like they just, they wanted to have a more interesting menu and they did it. And at the moment in non-pandemic times, they have a continuous rotation of 64 beers. It changes daily, so you'll never be bored. It's just a phenomenal bar. It's one of the few places that I went have been with my dad, who is kind of like your average normal beer drinker. I've been there with my mom, someone who does not drink beer because they have plenty of other options. I've been there with my friends. I've been there with everyone on the like under the sun. It's just a great place. Finally, it's, this is a bit of a wide recommendation, but if you have the ability to travel a bit more, visit any medium to large city in Poland, because I guarantee you will be able to find a really cool beer bar there that will blow your mind. Like, or unlike anything else, you could visit a tap room and they could have a tap list of 20 different beers, all Polish, all different styles, and it could change daily. So if you want to try Polish beers, which I honestly think are some of the most experimental beers at the moment, you would have days of fun ahead of you. And my favorite thing about a lot, a lot of the tap rooms is that they could have a favorite brewery that people love. It's really well known, but then the next brewery could be a really new one that no one knows. Again, if you're just trying to travel, do your research and just go. Like I'm sure you'll find some cool bar. Hola, my name is Leticia. I've been in the craft beer game now for almost 10 years. I've done it all, from cellar work to washing kegs to pouring beer to managing a tasting room. I've been lucky enough to open three breweries, two in downtown Los Angeles and one in the city of Bell. And I am now the marketing and events manager at Angel City Brewery. And I'm based out of my hometown in Highland Park. I'm here to tell you about my favorite bar in LA. While I have a few out there, one of my all-time favorites will forever be Glendale Tap. I remember going there when I just turned 21 and falling in love with their extensive drop beer list. I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about beer, but their stuff is always so friendly and super knowledgeable. I remember walking in, having a seat at the bar, and honestly just forming a friendship with them over beer, which is so special. If you go to a lot of bars, which I do. You learn it's the little things that matter. Nowadays, everyone is killing it with great cocktails, extensive beer selection, and even food. 
But what I always look for is great customer service. When you're able to instantly build a connection with your bartender and learn from there, that's the magic. Pubs bring people of all walks of life together. Another perfect example is Dali del Sor Cantina in Tijuana. It's another one of my all-time favorite spots. Super small and quaint, but has a great selection of beer and good mezcal, if you like mezcal. As soon as you walk in, you feel like a regular. You actually become one. They also have killer tacos outside too, which if you know me, tacos and beers are way to my heart. I hope you're able to visit both of these places. Cheers! My name is Ray Ricky Rivera. I'm the founder of Norwalk Brewhouse, and I'm the co-founder president for the SoCal Cerveceros Homebrew Club, only the greatest homebrew club on the planet. What makes a great pub? I think it's three things. One, it's the people, both the people behind the bar and the people in the pub consuming alcohol. <laughs> Those people got to be cool. Two, it's the atmosphere. I enjoy a place that's welcoming, that feels comfortable, you know, a spot you're not going to feel out of place. Uh, so people, atmosphere. And number three is the menu. I think a place is really cool when they have options that I'm already familiar with, yet they also have options that I'm not familiar with. So it's nice to see things on the menu that I know I'm going to like if that's the route I want to take, but also take a chance on something new and maybe find my new favorite beer. One of my favorite places is a place called La Cita in downtown Los Angeles. It's part pub, part live music venue. And they actually have two bars in this place. So they have a bar in the front where you can hang out, listen to live music, or they have a bar in the back patio. And the back patio is really cool because it's outside. There's people like hanging out in this courtyard kind of scene. And the bartenders are always really great. They know their stuff and the selection is always top notch. So yeah, La Cita, if you're ever in Los Angeles in downtown post pandemic, check it out. My name is Tara Marchant, and my connection to beer is I attended the Master Brewers program at UC Davis in 2018, and I have a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry, and I currently work at Trumer Brewery in Berkeley um, as their Quality Assurance Technician and Sensory Leader. I'm also the Chapter Co-Leader for Pink Boot Society, San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm also the Marketing Chair. For me, what makes a good pub is a wide or unique selection of beer, good ambiance, and positive interactions with the staff. One of my favorite beer bars is West Ray Beer Garden in Berkeley, California. They serve mostly local Bay Area beers, a couple others, and they have other drink options such as mold wine, normal wine, and ciders and non-alcoholic beverages as well. They have a really awesome menu, a lot of good sandwiches, salads, and they even have rice bowls, and they have a lot of bar bites as well. It's a pretty big menu. And the beer garden itself is like, it's actually somewhat of a garden, which I feel like is unique, even though it says beer garden, you know, it's often just a bunch of tables. It's not like that. There's all kinds of different sizes of tables, so many different areas that you can sit. There's like kind of like this open concept shed that you can sit under. You can sit in like, or you can sit in like open space. You can sit by a fire pit. You can sit by some flowers. I haven't sat everywhere in that beer garden. And like, to me, that's an adventure and fun. And I love that about it. And the staff is always really friendly. My next favorite beer bar is the Good Hoff in Oakland, California. It's owned by the multi-maven herself, Melissa Myers, and her partner. This is a mom and mom shop, and it does not disappoint. I love an owner who has been in production themselves in the beer industry, and I believe Melissa was a brewer for a long time. And she is extremely supportive of women in the industry, and she's a real ally. She's a Pink Boots member and she goes out of her way to do events at her bottle shop and events that support Pink Boots and that support the community. And I just think that's really important. Like she really brings the community together and she's just like a really alive person and really friendly person. 
They always have an amazing selection. Like you can always find something new there. I just had a Saison by Russian River that I had never had there. I had never even heard of it. So that was pretty cool. The staff is really super friendly and always helpful and really welcoming. My next favorite beer bar is Beta's Beer Garden in San Luis Obispo, California. First of all, this is a traditional German beer garden that serves Koenig Pilsner, Schwarzbier, Kolsch, Weiss, Hellaslager, and other great beers and wine, non-alcoholic drinks as well. They serve traditional German food and also soft pretzels. My first time going there, they had a blind tasting of four Pilsners, and it was Trümmer Pilsner, Koenig, Pilsner Urkel, and uh, this this local beer called Power Pilsner. That was by Central Coast Brewing. I did the event. And I got them all right. And the owner Beta was there. Him and his wife like are often there. He was there that night and uh, he like congratulated me with the prize, which was like this giant Koenigstein. Yeah, I got hired at Trimmer Pilsner right after that. So that was pretty magical. If you're looking for like German beer garden with that's like super traditional, it's an awesome place. Hi, I'm Kyle Devon. I beer tend at the Highland Park Brewery, and I'm a photographer based in Los Angeles. What I think makes a good pub or bar is a place that's kind of dimly lit, kind of warm, brown tones, someplace where it's not too bright. It allows you to be social if you'd like, but it also allows you to sit and read a book or write something. It allows you to be yourself in whatever form you might be feeling that you want to take that night. I have a few favorite beer bars. It started in San Francisco. I lived there probably when I first started getting into beer, and Tornado was kind of the mecca for me. Uh, It was the first place I went to where I felt almost overwhelmed by all the different styles and ambiance and knowledge and bartenders, (laughs) but a really beautiful place. I think the second place that informed my beer journey was Verdugo Bar. I went there almost weekly for years and just loved the staff, loved the beer selection. The people I was going there with were super friendly, super knowledgeable. It kind of introduced me to the LA beer scene. The third place is the Hermosillo. I moved to Highland Park right around the time that it opened. Before the Highland Park Brewery even started producing beer there, they just had a really wonderful curated list of craft beers from mostly, I think, California, Southern California. It was just That was my go-to. That was my second home, so to speak. Hi, my name is Anne Riley, and I am the executive director of the New York City Brewers Guild. Uh, Additionally, I am the present co-chair of our New York City Pink Boots Society chapter and one of the founding members of our New York City Women in Beer groups. To answer the question of what makes a good pub, I would have to say it's a number of things, especially here in New York, and I'm going to talk about non-pandemic times just for the sake of, um, I guess, consistency. Things that make a really good pub are, depending on the season, either an open window to the street or a fireplace. For me personally, a really strong tap list focused a lot on local. That's a big key for me. Other things that make a really fantastic pub is just comfort level. You immediately walk in and you feel comfortable, whether you've been there a thousand times or never before. Place that makes for a great Uh, as I like to say, go-to, that you can meet friends, family, someone in from out of town, a client. It serves a bunch of different purposes. Now, to answer some of my favorite uh, beer bars or pubs, especially here in New York City, I would have to say a long-time standing favorite is absolutely Blind Tiger. I feel like they cover all the things I spoke about as to what makes a good pub. You name it, any time of year is a great time to go there. Anytime I go there, I absolutely will run into someone I know. 
as for outside of the city, one of my favorite places I came across while traveling in Copenhagen was McJoy's in Copenhagen, which is a Nyhaven section along the canal. It has a beautiful, heavily carved and ornate bar. They had a fantastic selection of uh, beverages, not just beer, obviously, um, some great smoky peaty whiskeys, and that was perfect for that kind of weather in Copenhagen. Then for, I guess, another one outside of the city would have to be almost any pub I've been to in little towns outside of the cities in Ireland. I have a friend who grew up in Union Hall, which is an area of Cork, Ireland. It's on the seashore. It's amazing. It's a tiny little town that the first time I visited, I was amazed that they had four different pubs for a town that at the time its population was pretty small. Look forward to hopefully seeing some of you out and about to cheers and toast some of our fantastic pubs. Drinking beer, it makes you happy. It makes me happy too. It's truly manna from the gods of Satan. Let's raise a toast, drink it up, sip it down, gallop it too sweet. Thanks for listening to Brewing After Hours on the Believe Podcast Network. Find the show and lots of other great shows at Believe.com. If you're digging the show, please subscribe and rate the show on your preferred streaming platform. A special thank you to Honus Honus, the lyrical genius behind my favorite band, Man Man, who created the song you hear at the beginning of my podcast. Check the band's new album and more at manmanbands.com and at manmanbandband on Instagram. If you're looking for some homebrewing tips, make sure to follow me on Instagram at flora underscore brewing or subscribe to Flora Brewing on YouTube. For ad-free brewing tutorials and reviews, plus more one-on-one experience, become a Patreon member. It's just Patreon backslash Flora Brewing. Now, I really need a drink. I'll catch up with you all next week. Thanks again for listening and a friendly reminder to support your local craft brewery. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.